0: Hello, I hope you're well. You might have noticed that I've been on a bit of a break with the podcast and I'm going to be back in the summer with more regular episodes. But for now, I wanted to upload this one-off conversation because I thought it was really important to do this. It's actually a conversation that I recorded in the summer of 2017 when I was part of a different project called Unibus and it is with Polly Higgins, the environmentalist and ecocide lawyer who I was so sad to hear passed away yesterday. The project was um, a youth project and we took a minibus with a group of young people, about 15 people from the ages of about 19 to 25. And the idea was to drive around the UK visiting intentional communities and inspiring people and um, and that's what we did. And Polly was one of those people we met and she kindly invited us to her office uh, in Stroud. And we sat and we had cups of tea and she told us her story. She answered our questions and then afterwards she took us across the fields. We all took our shoes off and hid them in a bush and then we all walked barefoot over the fields to spend time and commune with this beautiful sacred tree. We were only with Polly for a few hours but she was very inspiring and she's actually one of the people that really inspired me to start Ministry of Change. It was after that trip and after meeting so many people like her that I got back to Brighton and decided I can't just stay here. I need to answer my own call and I need to go out and start exploring my own questions and so thoughts of Polly come up all the time and conversations come up about her all the time and I think it's a really poignant time now with everything that's happening with Extinction Rebellion and I think she's been key in opening up some of the conversations that are really integral to the way this moment in time we're living in now and the future so I'm not going to blab on too much I'm just going to play the conversation Uh, I I mean I recorded a few years ago I wasn't such a pro at recording then and there was loads of cups of tea on the table. So there's quite a lot of clinking of tea. But hopefully you can get past that and just focus on the really beautiful messages I think that Polly talks around. And and I know it's a sad time. Polly was one of the good ones and it's a really sad loss for the planet. But I also know that Polly ignited passion in so many people that her work will live on, and she will not be forgotten. In
1: 2010, I submitted a proposal into the United Nations Law Commission to amend the Rome Statute, and the Rome Statute is possibly the most important legal document that we have in the world, it's a codification treaty which put in place the International Criminal Court and it brought in the existing international crimes of genocide and war crimes and crimes against humanity. And I proposed... In 2010, there was a fourth one being added, crimes of aggression, and I proposed that there should be a fifth international crime of ecocide to criminalise ecosystem destruction. I, and I gave legal definition to that. Uh, It was on the back of doing um, rigorous legal research on it, and I realised that there was a gap here. Existing international global criminal law dealt with crimes that were mainly to do with times of conflict, as opposed to harm that's caused during peacetime, um, and also were predominantly to do with uh, causing harm to human beings. So genocide, for instance, crimes against humanity. So this was really about an expansion of our legal uh, system to also encompass one of the most serious crimes of our time, uh, ecocide, which is happening during peacetime. You don't have to have a war to have mass damage and destruction or loss of ecosystems. And that's largely state-driven or corporate-driven, but also it has huge, significant consequences for another type of ecocide, which is climate ecocide, rising sea levels, tsunamis, floods, all those kind of extremities of activities that are happening within our climate today, which are triggered and exacerbated and contributed to by the dangerous industrial activity, the, the ecological leucoside that's caused by state and corporate crime. So that was back in 2010. I This is now 2017, seven years on, and I... It's been an incredible process of taking it forward, speaking around the world, uh, legally advising legally advising governments, uh, and uh, working out how to progress this when it's so clearly required. And during that process, and this sometimes happens when you take on a quest in your life, that you become so immersed in it you begin to gain a deeper wisdom and understanding of what it's all about. And that's a remarkable process in its own right where there's a kind of constant refining uh, and diving deeper into it. And also research as well. A lot of research has been thrown up over the past seven years where we discovered that ecocide actually had been proposed to be a crime back in 1972 I mm. uh, and Olaf Palmer, who was then the Prime Minister of Sweden uh, when he had the first ever international conference on the environment, which was the Stockholm conference, he opened that uh, berating the United Nations for dragging their feet for not having put ecocide in place as an international crime at that time. so it has a whole history from then uh, there was a draft convention submitted into the United Nations in nineteen seventy three I And in fact, when the Rome Statute was being drafted itself to put in place the International Criminal Court and to codify the existing international crimes that had, had uh, been made as a result of World War II, I- in fact for 11 years, ecocide was going to be an international crime against peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the 11th hour we've discovered through documentation that we've now found, it was removed. And it was also removed, not just as an international crime, uh, but also as an international crime against states and corporations as well, state responsibility. So it has this huge history. And in a way, um, when I first thought about it, it it just goes to show that all it really required was any lawyer to put their head to it, and they'd come to the same conclusion. So it's common sense, if you like. This is progressive this is where law is going, Um, it's just a matter of when, not if. There's there's an awful lot of kind of backstory to this that shows that there's been a huge amount of engagement in it and unorthodox practices to have it removed. Fifty countries had, in fact, accepted that this should become an international crime and it was four countries that decided it was going to be removed. Without any vote, uh, it was just announced that it was going to be removed from the text. And I bet you can guess what those four countries are. Have a guess. UK, okay. yes. China. No, not China. China was no. one of the first. Russia. To no, so Russia was really angry that it was being removed. USA. US, USA. US yeah. yeah. Germany? No, Germany was good. France. France, France. and the Netherlands. Oh, Netherlands. No. Netherlands, yeah. Well, if you think about it. They're all
2: from that countries, are <laughs> Yeah. Like, different
1: countries. Okay. So, if you think about it, especially now, but also back in 1996 when this was removed, this was a country... uh, Who's the main employer in the Netherlands? big fossil fuel company. So, it's not my opinion, but we have records to show from the UN rapporteurs at the time. They said this was corporate lobbying behind the scenes from fossil fuel, uh, from nuclear, from France... Um, from uh, genetic modified industry in the US, yeah, um, and what's the other industry? I can't remember. But, um, and the UK unfortunately had their fingers in all these pies. So <laughs> I this this was in their opinion, and the UN rapporteurs, you know, the ones that were involved in the drafting at the time, for them this was like having you know their their baby chopped out of the window, uh, so, the, but they had a very insightful understanding of what had happened then, and in their records they said that this was corporate lobbying behind the scenes, that had stopped it from proceeding to allow business as usual to continue. Um, and that comes down to the lack of accountability, you know, not wanting to be accountable for anything that causes harm. What is very interesting is that big transnational corporations don't willfully intend to cause harm. It's it's recklessness. It's known as recklessness in law. I, where you either know but you don't want to take responsibilities or you should have known. Uh, there's so much evidence out there that you should have known um, but you failed to take responsibility for the consequences. So this is really about how we impute responsibility on uh, governments and on big business and hold to account at the very top end. It's known as also the principle that applies here is universal jurisdiction, so it applies right across there. Regardless of where the is cause, you can be prosecuted. Not all countries agree with that. They would prefer to have political immunity, um, and that depends on the politics of the day. Um, whether or not the politics of the day is prepared to take responsibility and act in a position of justice and protection for people, or whether or not there's money to be made um, and so don't want to be held to account for it. So as you can imagine, there's a number of countries that don't want to engage with the law, but there are also other countries that do, and that's very important, in particular small island developing states because actually they're not committing major ecocides, but they're the ones who are at the front line, those communities that are suffering the most from the exacerbation of climate change, which is exacerbated by uh, ecological uh, corporate-driven ecocide. There's an ongoing narrative, um, an engagement with a number of key countries, which is very exciting, and um, we've got very big plans. Uh, to roll out a really fantastic campaign hopefully within the next few months so you will be hearing about it very soon Mm -hmm. and uh, you are now part of the team (laughs) so for seven years I haven't campaigned I've really been legally advising and raising awareness in the public domain Um, and in fact I don't know if it is campaigning we're going beyond campaigning to a whole new uh, space this is more akin to uh, building a movement of earth protectors right across the world. I'm far more interested in how, uh, through, I mean many people have done research on this, that campaign gives you immediate short-term hits but ultimately never really resolves anything because it's again dealing with conflict um, rather than resolution. Whereas movements are far more powerful. Look at the civil rights movement, for instance. Mm-hmm. It's longer term. It's a marathon rather than you know a short, fast race. Campaigning tends to be short and fast and furious and tends to be very much um, demanding and against. But movements are far more... It's that dynamic energy of progressing forward with a solution. So Martin Luther King was very driven with equal rights uh, for blacks. Uh, so it was solution-driven. It, it wasn't... Uh, he wasn't so interested in the conflict narrative, but the peace narrative. Mm. Uh, and that was very, very important. And also for him it was about justice. Um, just as it was for William Wilberforce with the abolition of slavery, this is about justice. And justice is a very different narrative. It's not about um, commerce and trade and whether or not it's going to create jobs. It's about justice fundamentally. Is this right? Is this for the best? For humanity, is this for the best as we move forward? Uh, as a, in this world. Mm-hmm. Some people are always coming,
2: Martin Tokim, something there's some thread we are also following.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, narrative. <laughs> yes. So yeah. Talking. Yeah. Sometimes Gandhi, some kind absolutely absolutely. Mm-hmm. And if you look at all of them, all those that have been hugely effective, they've come from a place of peace. Mm. And this is a real challenge. We don't always feel peaceful, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm sure they, they weren't always continually peaceful either, but they were striving always to bring peace into themselves and to give that as a narrative outwards. You know, Gandhi was so powerful because he spoke from a place of non-violent uh, direct action. Same with Martin Luther King. Uh, same with um, Mother Teresa. You know, and the movements that engendered around them—they weren't campaigners; mm-hmm. they embodied something far greater than that. And it takes it up to a whole new level again. You're going beyond campaigning. Yeah. Campaigning—the word "campaigning" comes from uh, wars, so it's military terminology, so it carries conflict within it. Whereas movement, social movement, it's that—it's actually movement, energy, dynamic. You're moving forward and you're seeking to find alignment and harmony, it's, it's, it's a natural desire to find something better that can transcend and take something forward. Obviously, you're having to say no to something, but at the same time, you're saying no to that. There are my boundaries. That causes harm. Not going there won't let that happen, but wanting to move into a vision of a better place, a better world, and whatever that is, whatever your soul qualities are that you're wanting to be being. So when I was 20, I got to a point that um, I realized I really, really needed to study law. Uh, in fact, I, I was doing a postgraduate at Glasgow University. I, I, I just finished my master's at Aberdeen, um, then went to Glasgow to do a postgraduate. And I remember on the first day, in floods of tears, saying, I wish I'd, I wish I'd done law. And this was... I don't know where it came from. I really don't know because no one in my family is a lawyer. Uh, my mother's an artist. Uh, my father um, was a dentist, and before that, he um, was a climatologist. So I had a lot of interest in climate change. We used to sit around the kitchen table, and he would talk about climate and the weather and things like that from when I was quite young. Um, but my, my background was largely arts. And so this idea of finding myself in floods of tears, thinking I should be studying law, was just a really, really weird thing, you know, especially because I thought law was really boring. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, why not earth I in tears about it? But it was a weird thing. It, it was sort of like um, a knowledge, you know. And I ended up, after I finished my postgraduate, I came down to London... And I worked with an art dealer for six six or seven years. And he had started as a lawyer, but he'd spent more time in museums and art galleries. And in the end, he decided that he wanted to become an art dealer rather than study law. So when I said to him, well, actually, I want to study law, he, he thought I was absolutely mad. You know, if I, if on earth would you want to do that when you can be surrounded by you know, beautiful paintings? If I, if on earth would you want to be in a courtroom and conflict zone, actually, interestingly. Um, and I was saying, no, 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 it's, it's about justice. You know, I I really feel that I, I need to do this. This is a strong urge. It's, it's like a profound feeling within me to do this. And so I did. I went off and I studied law. I was 27, 28, I think, when I went back into studying again. Yeah. And I, I studied in London. I, I then qualified... Go to the bar, become a barrister, and that was the beginning of a completely different chapter in my life. In a really big way, uh, it, it was. I remember very vividly. Uh, when I the first day I started at bar school, uh, in the Inns of court, there was a, a board up, and one of the little card in the corner offering public speaking training. And I took the phone number and I phoned this woman and said I'd like to do this because I really think kind I'm of crap at this. Uh, and we went on to do training virtually the, the whole year uh, on a kind of weekly basis. And this was really fantastic for me because I was terrified of public speaking. And I, at the time I was sharing a house, uh, living in the basement of friends of mine, and he was a minister, a Scottish minister. It was a Scottish church in London, and he he said to me, "Why don't you come and give a reading one Sunday? It'd be good practice if you wanted to be a barrister." And I was absolutely terrified of doing this. This was just going to scare the living daylights out of me. And I remember that I stood up and gave this reading, and I was shaking so much that my teeth were actually chattering and my legs were wobbling. I was that terrified of doing this. And afterwards, I felt so ashamed that I'd done such a bad job that I stepped down from the podium and walked through the aisle of the church. And instead of going to sit back down in my seat, I just kept on walking out of the church. And I walked through London for four or five hours in the rain in floods of tears, thinking, I'm never going to manage to do this. I'm absolutely hopeless. My public speaking is rubbish. I'm so scared. And eventually, when I got back to my friend's house they said to me, where have you been, Polly? By the way, you were great. Mm. And I realised in that moment that this was a drama in my head. Mm. It's a whole big drama that I had going in my head. For them, this was fine. You know, I'd done a nice job. Mm. And this was really, really an important moment of me discovering that I had my own conflict narrative going on here. You're not good enough. You're never going to be good enough. You know, who am I to dare to stand up, to speak out? all these kind of negative patterns of self-belief for whatever reason, wherever they come from. And I resolved there and then that actually I'm going to do something about that. Because how on earth am I going to step in and speak out on behalf of injustices if I'm busy in my head? carrying these ridiculous stories and I resolved I'm going to deal with this I'm going to let these go let these go and this is still something to this day I've got a whole process that I use to deal with negative thought processes and challenge myself to say you know is this serving my highest purpose if not I choose to let it go and I I literally I, I take a moment to visualize and let it go and as a result it frees you up that's not to say I don't still get quite scared when I'm doing public speaking. But it wasn't until far, far later that I discovered this woman that I did training with, she told me far later, I was the only student that had taken up training. And ironically, I'm now doing what I'm doing. And I still, every so often as I go through the world, if I find someone that I think is truly great in public speaking, then I'll do one-on-one sessions because actually all the time I'm wanting to up my game. You know, public speaking is, is actually quite an important tool in what I'm doing. If I can't message about this in a way that you understand, I'm failing in my, my role as an earth lawyer, if you like. And that's what you do if you're representing the earth. And it doesn't matter if you're a lawyer, or anyone for that matter, you're actually you're giving voice on behalf of the earth, whether or not you're standing up, uh, to protect the earth from being fracked whether or not you're standing up to protect the earth from the Amazon being destroyed or, or whatever your you know, your front line issue uh, conflict zone is if you can stand up and speak and speak from a place where you're not in conflict with yourself you can speak from peace your narrative is heard that much clearer and so all the time and this is a lifelong process you know, and it's something that, actually, if you look at all the greats of this world, they dealt with the inner stuff as well as the outer stuff. I call it the inner equal side. You know, how do we stop these patterns of harm within ourselves? And if we can actually learn to choose to break those, then we can be freer in every way, actually, to enjoy life in far greater capacity. So that was really my starting point. Uh, which began my journey and it, it was quite clear now looking back that I was required for what I'm doing, it was kind of the training ground, you know, being in and out of courts for seven years. And there's a kind of seven year pattern going on here as well, you know, it was 28 when I made that really decisive move to change and take a different path uh, and then a further seven years of engaging with that and yeah, I mean, there's a kind of process of iterations that happens there I think. Cycles within our lives. Yeah. <laughs> so different, like being an these schools and decide like, okay, I want to study no? It was like a compulsion.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I didn't know where it came from. It was a calling, really. Um, I mean, I realize now that it was it was me hearing a call was a far deeper level, and actually, it I mean, it took me seven years from when I was twenty one. Um, doing my postgraduate, to then finally take the step to step into that. But somehow, far earlier on, there was a deep kind of awareness of that. Yeah. So you were interested in twenties like uh, like social change in this kind of direction. Was suddenly really like, oh, uh,
2: you saw the media, you felt something bad, or it just twenty eight you really felt,
1: I need to change. How it was the process? It it was a kind of almost a growing um, yearning. And it just got stronger and stronger and stronger. I, and the thing was, you know, I had no money. I'd come out of university with a huge amount of debt. I was running um, uh, a business on the side, I cooking in the evenings as well as working during the day. Working for an art dealer is not well paid. You know. um, so I was having to kind of shore up a lot of debt that I had as well at the same time. And this idea of going back to university was going to cost me money because I was going in, uh, you know, it, I, I, I didn't have access to do it for free. I would have to pay to do this. Um, and I don't know, I just, I just felt that I have to do this, I have to do this. And I have no idea where I'll get the money from. I went into the library um, and I got the charity handbook. And I spent two weeks going from one end to the other working out who I could apply to and making applications. It ended up, after two whole weeks, there were only four that I was eligible for, and I applied to all of those four. And all of those four actually gave me their top grants, which was really fantastic. But even then, it wasn't nearly enough to cover all my costs. Um, but I decided I'm going to do it. I managed to wangle money out of the bank. Um, I had no idea how through halfway through the year, um, halfway through my second year, I was going to manage to make up the difference. And you know what? My father died. He left me money, which is amazing, which allowed me to pay off some of my debts. I didn't buy a house. I paid for the rest of my, my career, if you like. It allowed me to continue with law. Um, but there was something that was compelling within me, that somehow, somewhere, something would come up that would allow me to continue with it. And I'm very grateful my father actually gifted me the greatest gift in his death enough money to continue with it and I think this happens when you have a compulsion you know nothing will stop you I no matter what and you know things will happen that you don't expect obviously it was very sad that my father died but you know he was a great age he was in his 80s and he died in the bath which is a brilliant way to go mm-hmm. <laughs> you know nobody saw him coming I did he but Hey, that's brilliant, um, and it, that's a wonderful gift. I, it allowed me to continue with what I saw I had to do. It was a compulsion, actually, and it still is in a way. You know? I am compelled and propelled forward. In a way, you know, magic happens when you're in alignment with you. I call it my highest purpose, and. And that's not to say that you know life is perfect every day there are challenges but also you know there's kind of a wisdom that comes with this and an acceptance you know if there's no money there that's fine too maybe there's other stuff that i need to do you know no matter what something can always be done i i don't pay myself and yet you know i have a team around me nobody's paid the gift of time for free we live in the gift economy in a really big way which is really fantastic um we're just about to move into new premises and the new premises need a whole lot of work and they've come back to us and said, well, what if we give you a new of rent that you fix it up yourselves um, rather than paying rent? And you know what? That would buy us our six months for free. How great is that? We've got a whole bunch of friends. We can have a painting party. You know, we've got friends that can put in a bit of plumbing. The stuff we can do here and that's really fantastic. And living down here is a real gift as well. Mm-hmm. There's a fantastic community who really give their time and energy and their skills, and um, you know there's a real strong sense of the gift economy here. It, it's quite remarkable in Stroud. There's, you know, people care about local and global issues. There's a big conversation always happening, you know, in Star Nice and in the market on Saturdays, Fridays and Saturdays, and you know we tap into. You know, beautiful vegetables and Hawkwood College and you know, Steiner establishments around here. There's there's a different way of thinking happening here. Where there's a community that's very much aligned, but it's also very diverse as well. You know, um, and but it's aligned with intent of deep care, and that's what's critical. That that's the golden thread, if you like, the deep care for earth and community, and and it shows. You know, and how people engage with each other and are willing to you know, uh, meet with the disagreements and you know, move forward and find the ways and sometimes it's an agreement to disagree you know. I, but it's actually really fantastic to see how people help each other especially in times of crisis here and that's because there's actually quite a lot of resilient, inbuilt um, openness openness to wanting to help and assist in care, you know, rather than it being closed down, uh, it creates its own resilience. And there's also quite a lot of happiness here as well. People are, you know, quite. A, we have actually got a very good standard of life. You can be quite skint here, but still really enjoy life because people will give you vegetables. You can go and pick them. You know. Um, There's the places to stay and rooms to be had and what have you, and that that's that sense of sharing, Um, and especially because it does have a history here of people um, looking after each other and standing up um, to protect their community. You know, a bypass no cutting down trees. We're not going to have that. We want to protect our trees. The high street, making sure that not all the shops went into big high street chains, making sure that they remained local the local hospital making sure that that remained you know there has been a kind of history of people standing up and speaking out and coming together very quickly holding emergency meetings and everyone coming together going right we're going to make sure that we protect this community here and that's that's got its own kind of dynamic narrative that feeds through it as well a um, quite strong kind of endemic um, mobilisation underpinning it is a kind of movement. It, it's it's not a, just about protesting, it's about seeing themselves as a community. The community element is really, really important, I think. Um, and it's it's you know it's good fun. We have good parties here. <laughs> <laughs> Fancy dress parties party to the movie. Yeah. <laughs>
2: question this is that uh, like how i sometimes mm-hmm. experience it with myself that i university and uh, and so on there are certain kind of for example also university groups yeah. activist groups in all kinds of regions yeah. and you're always thinking about joining in and maybe start to join in but something makes you feel uncomfortable because yeah. you have the feeling this is actually not exactly what i what i believe in so, um, yeah, my, my question is just how did you, for example, when you were 28 and you started to study, was there, like, this idea already, like, on, like, a profound, like, vision, yes, that's the thing I want to stand up for, or was that growing, and how um, did you have to somehow try out, and were you going into different groups and finding a little bit out what's really, how did you deal with this kind of uncomfortable situation and not mm. really Actually believing in what I have to say now
1: up at the stage. Yeah, actually, that's a very good point. I, I didn't have a clear uh, vision. I it, it was more for me. It was a, a kind of it, it was just a, a, a very strong feeling. Intuition. Uh, in- hmm? Intuition. Du- intuition. Intuition. Yes, intuition. Absolutely, that's the right word. Yeah, I and. It, you know, there are a whole load of areas in law that you can go into, commercial law, for instance, media law, environmental law. And in fact, at that time, environmental law was just not even very much on my radar. I, But fully enough, when when I was choosing which chambers to go to, to train in as a, as a what was then called as a pupil, I, I was given very good advice by one of my lecturers, and he said, Polly, don't get too hung up on... You know, determining where your life's path is life is a habit of showing you um listen listen to your You he said gut instinct but your intuition yeah and you know very quickly you kind of get a sense of this isn't really working for me or this is where i'm going to go and and also life kind of presents stuff to you as well i ended up doing criminal law i ended up doing family law um and civil law and actually i ended up Civil uh, law was where I ended up doing most of my work. I representing big transnational corporations. I and it took seven years of doing that until I got to a point when I was in a courtroom representing a man who'd been very badly injured and harmed in the workplace, and it was a three-year-long case I'd been in, um, involved in. And this was the very last day, judgment day. We were in the Court of Appeal in the Royal Courts of Justice. Literally waiting for the judges to come in, and I found myself looking out of the windows, the highest courtroom in the building, right across London. I saw the trees, I saw the buildings, and I found myself thinking, You know, the earth's in need of a good lawyer. And it was like I'd become an eagle, I'd, I was flying across the world, and I could see the harm that was playing out. And you know, I'd been clocking it more and more on the television, and you know. On the news, on the internet, and and it, it was really at some level beginning to cause me a lot of anguish, and that was a, a critical choice point moment in my life. But everything built to that, and it was very important that I've been representing transnational corporations. It's very important that I'd had some experience doing a bit of criminal law. Very important that I've been dealing with family law, child protection issues. You know, all of this fed into what I'm dealing with now. I didn't do any environmental law, yeah, so I'm actually coming from a place of looking through the perspective of why is a company doing this, and doing this from perspective of justice, criminal justice, doing this from perspective of protection—not child protection, but earth protection. It all greatly informs where I am now, so that I have a far greater understanding, and therefore. It, actually means that my narrative is far more informed as a legal uh, perspective with all of this but what happened there in that courtroom that day fundamentally changed everything again (coughs) boom you know it's like you know when I I was 21 (coughs) boom I changed I decided I'm going to go and study I find myself thinking I should be studying law 28 (coughs) boom I went off and I did it and here at 35 so seven years on again 35 that I had this moment in court where I thought the earth's in need of a good lawyer and something needs to be done about that. And I came out of that courtroom and I'd actually won the case in part. I, and it, it changed law at that point of time. And as I walked down from the courtroom back to my chambers, I'd made my decision. I decided I was going to take a year out from law and work out how do we create. A question came to my mind. How do we create a legal duty of care for the earth? Because I could see in my mind's eye that there was no legal duty of care. And the moral duty of care obviously wasn't being upheld. So by the time I got down to my clerk's room, they're the guys that run your, your kind of court uh, schedule, and they were saying, Miss, this is great, you know, your name is Mage, you've won this case, you know you can take on any really big case now. This is fantastic. You're, you're pitching way above your weight. And I said, yeah, I'm taking a year out. And they said, this is, you're mad. This is ridiculous. And and I said, no, I have to. Uh, I want to take a year out now. And I'm still in my year. <laughs> I'm 49 now, so that was when I was 35. Um, I can't remember where I'm at there. So I've, I've been through a number of iterations. But this is the thing. We actually we get critical choice points in our lives. Mm-hmm. Those moments that if we choose, we we'll fundamentally change the path of where we're going. Yeah. And actually, it was explained to me far later. Uh, this wonderful elderly lady came up to me after hearing me talk, and I was I was telling her about that uh, at some event I was speaking at, and she said, "You heard the call. You heard the call." There was a call there being made to you from the earth and you heard it in that moment. Everything you've done in your life led up to that moment and it was time to go. And she was right, actually. In in a kind of more cosmic way, I had heard the call and I had responded to it. I And I had no idea where it was going to go. Just as I had done, I hadn't done it when I was 21. I kind of ignored it actually. But I did it when I was 28. And you're stepping off what seems like your normal route, you're stepping off from what you think you should be doing or where you're supposed to be going and you're stepping into the unknown. So I stepped into the unknown of studying law and here at 35 I then stepped out of law, you know, from practising in the court and instead I was taking those legal skills as a barrister to do something creative. So I was stepping out of the conflict zone if you like to then step into a zone where I would create the law that was required that had to be taken forward and that took a bit of doing it took it took a period of self-reflection it took a period of investigation, um, a deeper dive into I- examining that and then when I got to the point of recognizing it and what it was that was required, then it was a complete deep dive into it and it came very fast. I, I literally spent three months. Uh, examining whether or not, Ecocide could be made an international crime, I, I just treated it like a legal brief, I I just uh, dropped everything, and immersed myself in, if we could create a law of Ecocide, what would it look like, what would that drafting be, where would it go, I went back to first principles, I examined what was already in existence, to see how this could work. And it, it was one of these kind of moments of, it's almost like a madness, an obsession, you're diving in, nothing matters. I didn't wash my hair for three months. I couldn't even bother to shower, but I did at the insistence of my husband. <laughs> I, you know, and I just, I really immersed myself in it. And uh, when I finally came up after three months, and kind of looked in the mirror and went, oh, God, no, I really do need to wash my hair now. Um, because <laughs> in London, it didn't really work. Elsewhere, it does, I think if you're really stuck in polluted London it it just got really funky but but actually what I had was something that was ready to be taken out into the world and I proposed that into the United Nations Law Commission And, and very quickly the Guardian heard about it within a week and they then wrote about it and Insisted that I had a website up, and literally we were putting up the website when they put it out online and into the papers, and it it just it went off like wildfire. It was a really remarkable kind of moment when that happened, because I had no idea where it would go. I thought my job was done. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you see, you laugh now, you know, but at the time, I I I thought, okay, I've done it now. There we go. It'll all happen. Of course, it doesn't. Life's not like that plans, different routes Mm -hmm. so to get back to your question, you know, I don't know it's you know, when you think it's a done deal it never is, it's just the opening of the door for the next stage if you like and um, the more we can tap into our innate, our fundamental feeling of understanding, does this feel right, is this good, is this where I'm meant to put my energies at the moment, it's a question I come back to all the time is this for the best, in the higher scheme of things in service to this earth. You know, is this for the best that I go here, I do that, I do this, what have you? It, it's it's a question that informs everything that I'm doing. And even if I really, really really want to go and do something, and I get this, it's not for the best, then I'm not. So, for instance, I was invited to speak at Burning Man Festival, which would be amazing, and I would absolutely have loved to do, to do that. But I got that it wasn't for the best. And with huge, great reluctance, after having kind of an internal fight going on, you know, I want to do it. I ended up thinking, okay, fine. I emailed to say I'm really sorry, I can't do it this year, but please keep me in mind for another year. Literally, as that email was going out, in came one to my box saying, "Polly, we'd like you to come up to Kazakhstan to meet with a whole bunch of uh, parliamentarians uh, dealing with nuclear non-proliferation to advise on ecocide law." Exactly the same dates. It was quite clear I was meant to be up in Kazakhstan. That's where my skills were required. Um, Much as I would have loved to have a jolly off to Burning Man, that's not where I was meant to be. Um, And I've had real challenges on this. I was at uh, Glastonbury speaking, and I had to leave to go to the Netherlands to do a workshop the next day. And I was literally leaving as they were announcing their surprise act, which was the Rolling Stones.
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> then
1: you, then I, then I had just... to go. I, that, was, that was probably the worst challenge of my life. I, <laughs> I really wanted to stay for that. So I'm putting that up, paying it forward for my karma that one day I get to dance with Mick Jagger. Stones. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Reality in one side, you have this need of having regulations about, I guess, limiting the harm people can make to the environment, to humanity, Mm -hmm. but in the other side, also, you have um, the need of building consciousness about it and of somehow um, being able to kind of change fundamentally from inside so you can act from that place instead of from outside come and kind of say, okay, this is what you should do, or, or this is what you should not do. So how do you see this kind yeah. of double reality that I guess you can confirm? Well, do
1: you know, when I first started drafting ecocide Law, I actually I spent days pacing up and down my bedroom saying, do we really require another law? Is this not actually uh, closing things down rather than moving up to a place where you know we all live in harmony? And I, I came to a point where I realized that, in fact, it's incumbent upon us, if we have a conscience to actually stop harm, um, if you allow harm to continue, then you're actually you're playing into, you're being complicit in a reality that says that harm is fine, that it works, that, you know, this is how we operate, whether or not that's sexual abuse, whether or not that's violence, violence against human beings, violence against the earth. So it becomes incumbent upon us if we want to live in a greater freedom, and by that I mean in harmony with an earth that is not being destroyed, then we have to come to a point where we say, "Okay, it's a no-go zone, cannot go there. It's not to limit it, it's to stop it, actually. It's to fundamentally stop it, and that's a very different thing. Regulations that limit something... Give it permission to continue and it gives permission for people to go over their limits. So, most of the environmental harm today is governed by environmental regulations that you, you get permits to pollute. You're permitted to pollute to a limited level. So, what happens? These companies just go right over those limits because, hey, if, if they do, who takes action? Well, you know, this is the interesting thing the state. Has no duty to act on your behalf. It's not there to protect you when it comes to that. You're going to have to sue that company. And your community, that's maybe had toxic dumping in the Amazon, for instance, I'm thinking of the Texaco Chevron case, can spend 13 years chasing Texaco Chevron. Pablo Pajardo actually trained himself up to be a lawyer during that time. As one of the indigenous community, many of his family were killed during that time, um, and his community. which was no accident this is quite clear he was under threat by that company but there's nothing he can do about that and he's always got the big picture of I have to stand up to stop this company but the problem is with existing environmental regulations even where they're found guilty which Texaco Chevron have been they're refusing to pay out they're refusing to pay out meanwhile people have died, are sick, are ill the land is polluted so where do you go from there? You know, That is not justice. That's environmental regulation. That's civil litigation. Justice is, in fact, when you're dealing with outlawing something, when you criminalise something. When we outlawed the abolition of slavery, it was criminalised. It was made a crime. Apartheid, it was criminalised. And now genocide as well, now it's with ecocide. You get to a point where you actually outlaw. You're saying, no, enough, no more. We don't do that as, a, as a, a society that has a higher level of conscience. But what you're doing is you're creating governance. Governance for those who aren't operating from a first do no harm principle. So you're creating a governance system that says, we don't do that anymore, and if you do, there are consequences. So you become accountable. And that's very important, because that's what criminal law is about, is about accountability. Of course, if you're working from a first do no harm principle, you're not going to end up in a criminal court of law. Of course not. This is not about governing those who are already in a place where they're operating from a life-affirming way of engaging with the earth. This is actually about ensuring there's governance and accountability for those who are causing harm. And it's to protect the society and protect the community and the earth community that is already living in harmony. see this and i'll send you the slide for this as well this is the governance pyramid and this actually demonstrates precisely what's happening legally at the moment in terms of when you're looking at climate change and ecosystem destruction so you'll see at the bottom level it deals with what's known as soft law and soft law is when you have agreements they can be international agreements but they have no enforceability so the Paris Agreement is a very good example of that. There's no enforceability within that document. It's all based on good faith and goodwill, but when things go wrong, Trump pulls out. Nothing you can do about that. Yeah. Um, the second level deals with civil law. And this is often when you have lots of regulations, for instance, permit allocations, permit to pollute. Yeah, and this is all about how... Um, it's actually... It's, there's a protection element here. It's to protect business interests. So it's to allow business Mm. to continue, but it kind of limits, you know, what they can do. And if they go over those limits, then government doesn't have to do anything about it, but you as the community, you as the individuals, will have to sue. And often what that means is that individuals or communities are financially under-resourced. Either they don't chase, or if they do, big transnational corporation has a lot of financial resources to, to pour into it. They can fight it for many decades. Civil litigation takes a long time, many years rather. Um, And community, if it does get anything, it's limited remedy. It's often too little, too late. But the third tier, and this is the tier that I'm dealing with, is criminal law. Criminal law is, is about justice. And criminal law is when the state has a duty to act on your behalf. So say someone steals something from you, say someone hurts you, It's the state that steps in to take action on your behalf. You don't have to sue that person to have justice. The state will step in. Say someone is actually harming, uh, you know, you, 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 and you. You know, all all the women here. Actually, this is someone that's out there, and he's he's, um, a mass killer. He's killing all the women in society, for instance. The courts will deal with it, not just a punishment element, but to protect society as a whole. That's a person that you don't want out in society. Um, That needs to be, you know, society has to be protected from that, especially when you're dealing with collective harm. It starts to be a very big problem. So serial killers, for instance, are a big problem. Pedophiles, another example of this. Now, that's not to say there shouldn't be some form of restorative justice where actually you can work with individuals to help change things. Sometimes you can, sometimes not. depends whether or not they're open to it. It depends what processes are are available. depends whether or not you've got a government that's going to finance that as well you know, a lot of this sort of stuff that should be helping in prisons in this country is not because we've had a government that's cut all of the funding for all of that, so charities try to step in uh, but judges are finding especially criminal judges that they have more and more problems, especially with mentally ill people, that there's not the adequate support that's required for them and that having to rely on external agencies to come in and help where the court system should be doing it but Saying that, this is where justice is, because it becomes incumbent upon the state to take action on your behalf. To protect you, to protect society. But also, this is where there's missing justice, because this is about how we protect ecology as well, the wider earth community. So I'm dealing with law here at the top end, the criminalisation of mass damage and destruction. To protect societies, to protect the earth, to protect the inhabitants of any given territory. It's not just human beings that live there. And what you'll see just now is that when you're dealing with climate negotiations, it's all pretty much this bottom tier. But in truth, this is not up for negotiation. Criminal law doesn't deal with negotiation. It deals with what is causing harm and what is not. That is not a negotiation, and that's very important. And indeed, the trade and commerce narrative Oh, it creates jobs, it's good for the economy. That's not accepted in a criminal court because it deals with justice. A criminal court mm-hmm. deals with whether or not it's causing harm, and if you're making money out of causing harm, then that's an aggravating feature. It's not a mitigating factor, and that's a very important aspect of this as well. So this is the problem, is that at the moment, existing environmental law is state-sanctioned because it allows it to happen. you got to chase if you've got a problem with, with some company you got to chase. state won't get involved. But when it becomes a crime, then the state has a legal duty to protect its communities. And that's a very different level of engagement altogether. And that's why I'm dealing with that area of governance, not further below. And actually, what you were asking about, where does it fit? It doesn't fit into that equation at all, because justice overrides everything else. And that's what matters. It's life-affirming, not life-destroying in its, in its engagement. Yeah. So this, this is a slide that I, I hope helps kind of explain far more easily how law is operating at the moment, particularly within the context of climate change and ecosystem destruction. At best, you can sue, but that's not good enough because it leads to a huge amount of injustice. It's only when here the missing justice is put in place that we're going to see a fundamental shift in how we deal with trade and commerce and how we actually engage with the world. Ultimately, at the end of the day, you're shifting paradigms um, because you're aligning human law with a higher law. And that's what this is about. Because there's a higher law at play here that says, first do no harm. And so, by putting in place ecocide law, actually that's all we're doing. We're just alig- aligning our human law with a higher law. And when you do that, you shift from serious harm to harmony. And that's what this is about. Now, that may not play out in my lifetime. It may take, you know, a few lifetimes of this law being in place. But we'll eventually get to a stage when that law won't even be required anymore because so many. People and companies and communities and individuals and governments will be in so much alignment that these laws won't even be required anymore. But we're not there yet. So this is about creating the bridge to that world. You know, What are the pathways, what are the neural pathways that we reconfigure in our minds so that it becomes a normative to first do no harm, rather than at the moment it's a complete normative to make lots of money out of, for instance, fracking, which is deeply harmful. Uh, So, we're shifting normatives of what's acceptable and what's not. And we're drawing a red line, if you like, saying that's a no go, we don't go there. Just as we did with genocide, we said it's a no go. We didn't create regulations that limited and give you permits for genocide. We said, no, that has to stop. Same with apartheid, it has to stop. We never let that happen anymore. And it's the same thing, it's the absoluteness in it. What we're doing is we're creating parameters of acceptability what is acceptable and what is not. And it's just the same in child protection cases. What is acceptable, what is not. If you hear someone through the wall in your house next door and they're beating up their child, you don't go around there and say, do you mind doing that just a little bit less, especially on a Friday night because we're only watching the film? Mm -hmm. You don't. You say, this has to stop. And if that person just punches you, you'd go to the police. Why would you go to the police? Because actually at some fundamental level, it's a normative within society to say that is fundamentally wrong to abuse that child. You may not logically work it out that therefore the state has to operate on our behalf to make sure that that stops, but you'd recognise it as an injustice, as would the police, and they'd be there immediately to attend to it and address it. And then you'd have criminal proceedings because there's an injustice at play, and also you'd also have family protection proceedings as well. To put the interests of the child first, to see where that child needs to be placed, um, or what needs to be done to ensure the safety of that child. So it's a protectionism issue, and same here. This is about protection.
0: I'm not sure if this question is the same as Philippines. I think it's not, but I'm interested in how um, you see how much is law responsible for changing the world, and how much individual. Responsibility into yeah. it. Um, I mean I imagine there's a degree of both, but to what
1: degree? I don't I don't know how but to what degree. Um, there is there is an interconnectedness here. I so sometimes law reflects where society is going. So the abolition of slavery is a very good example of that, where there's a huge movement. I uh, the whole abolitionist movement. I really galvanised the creation of the laws that abolished it. I, but sometimes law can lead. So genocide was put in place as an international crime after World War II, but it didn't require a whole social movement to do that. Actually, there was a higher conscience there arising out of external events, if you like, where I, at a governmental level it was recognised that this must never happen again. So it it can come from different directions. It it doesn't seem to be that there is one clear route. But if you look at it, for instance, today, what we're dealing with is actually the growing of of a kind of, for want of a term, Earth Protectors social movement happening. So whether or not you're looking at um, the Bentley effect uh, with Lock the Gate movement in Australia, I standing up and speaking out as earth protectors with their, their protect, protector camps to prevent the fracking from happening. Um, same in Dakota and Nona Montana, for instance, um, or you know, the Dakota Pipeline. Uh, and there you saw sacred activism as well coming from the indigenous world and unlikely alliances happening where um, black Africa really came in student solidarity with the indigenous world, for instance. I, and you're finding that there are these pockets of uh, individuals, the divestment movement as well, a very good example of a movement where individuals are finding it untenable that we're causing so much harm, you know, so calling on individuals and institutions to divest their money from big transnational corporations that are causing the most serious harm. So it's coming in different directions... I, and, you know, there maybe comes to a point, well, it will, it, it, there has to come to, to a point, the, the kind of critical choice point moment where it tips, you know, do we choose to continue with this or do we choose to take a different avenue? And law is part of that, but it's a very big disruptor in it. It's fundamentally, if you look at any huge change in history, law is a reflection of that. You cannot have a huge change in a world where we are governing our, our communities and our world with written law that it's not reflected in that in some capacity. So either law is the driver or law is the follower. Or, you know, so it takes the some two. sort of
0: social uh, momentum anyway before the law can really get...
1: Not necessarily. Genocide was put in place without that. Okay. Um, so it's it, it can come from different directions. I, I think... In a way, there are patterns there. If you look at it in terms of patterns, it's clearly a pattern of civil society helping really generate that momentum that then in- ensures and supports the laws put in place. I, but there, there are other patterns. I mean, for instance, genocide was the path of one lawyer, uh, Raphael Lemkin, who really got on his soapbox and wrote the book with, lot, with genocide law written down, which they used at the Nuremberg War Trials. And he'd been, you know, on his soapbox for quite some time. It was at least 12 years beforehand before that was actually they took the book and they said, OK, now we're going to apply this. It got to a crunch point. So you can have external factors playing in. Um, You can have something ready, prepared to go. I I really took a leaf out of Raphael Lemkin's book by writing the law in advance rather than waiting for the the critical point of no return where we suddenly go, OK, what law are we going to put in here? So it's already in place. If anything, what I'm doing is I'm accelerating the process. But also this does require other actors. It's not an isolated journey. It it requires uh, the social movements. It requires uh, the protesters, actually. What's very interesting, Gandhi was very aware that by having the extremists, those who were always um, in a place of uh, conflict and aggression and were prepared to use violence to move forward with what they wanted actually contextualised him as eminently reasonable so where um, the British Empire didn't want to have anything to do with Gandhi once they started having the extremists suddenly Gandhi was actually their man that they wanted to talk to so you're given context you know, for this so there are different roles within this and, you know, maybe there is a role in this you know, side of it where there are those who are standing up and actually using violence to get a message across. It's not my way, uh, but what it does is it recontextualizes those who are coming from a place of peace. But what the patterns of history do show are those who stand up from a place of peace are the ones that fundamentally change things, ultimately, at the end of the day. They're the change makers. They're the wayfarers that show a better way. Uh, it's, it's messy, you know, life is messy. There's no clean-cut answer here. I And actually, if we allow the messiness to happen, that's so much more organic. How do I deal with my inner ecocides, my conflicts? I, how do I deal with people that kind of boomerang into my radar who have very set ideas of how they want to change this? I had two okay. men that turned up in my office who said... We're going to give you so much money. We'll make you a millionaire. Uh, We'll give you all the money you need to take this forward. Uh, you just got to get rid of the word ecocide. (laughs) Okay. Just get rid of the word ecocide. That wasn't a difficult decision. I just showed them the door. (laughs) Goodbye. Yeah. Yeah, like, um, what you mentioned, like, protesting in peace. How do you do that? Like, how how I understood it is, like, First start with people to yourself, and then you start to bring it out. But it's really difficult. That's how, do you, yeah. and how you do it. Well, I don't know if I'm an expert in it yet. It's, to be honest, it's an ongoing journey. You to try to so that's it's a start. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, this is about how we, you know, self-govern, if you like. Um, I don't view myself as a protester. I'm not protesting. I'm not protesting against anything. And protecting um, and when I protect I see what is not going to happen um, I and I say what, what I am going to do I that's not a protest that's a fundamentally different stance uh, I it's, it's a protectionist stance actually um let me give you an example mm. protesting is often um governed by demanding something you know, you must do this you got to do that, you must stop this <laughs> protecting is when you're just standing there and saying I'm sorry but I'm refusing to allow this to happen this is my ba- boundary you're not coming by this I'm going to stand strong in it I don't know if you've ever seen the videos of um, I forget the name of the girl, she, she walks through massive um, police barricades just from a place of peace have you seen her yeah. she just stood up and she she walked through and it was huge barricades of police and the police ended up moving away mm. for her as she moved through when i uh, it's about six months ago i'll find the footage and i'll send it to you mm. because it's so powerful it's it's actually it, it's it's deeply deeply moving and she's just coming from a place of peace and this is the same with my friend Poeng, you know, with the police. She did it in a kind of micro form just last week up in Lancashire. She came from a place of peace. I. And she made it very clear to the police. She said, "Do not touch me. Uh, that would be a violation of my space." I, but I'm standing here to protect this earth, and you know, and they arrested her and what have you. And that's fine. I part of when you're standing up on the front line is an acceptance that. You may end up being arrested. But it's an opportunity, you see. It's an opportunity to engage in a different form of conversation with the police, with the arresting officers, with then the court system, where you can actually bring forward a different narrative. You can say there's missing justice here. There's, you know, I'm standing up because actually there's missing law. Instead of prosecuting me, there are others that should be held to account here. And this was a point that one of my all-time heroines made, uh, Sophie Shaw, Sophie Scholl was truly a truly remarkable individual who I, I, mean you must know about her as well, yeah. Yeah. Who, who stood up and spoke out uh, about the injustice of uh, genocide. In fact, she didn't even know the word. It wasn't in existence uh, in the public domain at that time. I mean, it was in existence, but n- not known to the public. Kind of sometimes a bit like uh, ecocide. It's not always an awareness that there is a term for it. But when she was arrested I, and she was put into court, you know, it, it wasn't justice, of course it wasn't. She wasn't even allowed to put forward any form of proper defense. And she was, you know, leaned upon, give names, and we might find that you can get an easier sentence. She wasn't prepared to do any of that. She was standing strong in her truth for a greater justice. And she was standing to say, that is a gross injustice, and I will not accept it. And at the very end of her trial, where she was sentenced to death, she, uh, she, she actually she spoke and she said, it's only a matter of time when the true perpetrators will be held to account in this court. And indeed, it, it was literally months later that the Nuremberg War Tribunal started. But, of course, that, that judge had no conscience on that issue. That, he, he screamed at her, actually. Uh, how dare you speak out in this way? I'm sentencing you to death for daring to speak out. I, He didn't have a conscience, but she did. And, you know, the amazing thing was, was that it was literally months later when those Nuremberg war tribunals started, she was right. And she recognised that higher truth. And she did a remarkable job. You know, she, she, she handed out all these leaflets. In fact, how she got arrested was, I've been to um, Munich University, where it's a remarkable atrium. It goes up three floors. And everyone comes out at a certain time, you know, from the bell goes, and you change to go to different lectures. And what she was doing, was she was dispersing leaflets with her brother and a few others, so that when everyone came out, they'd pick up these leaflets about what was happening in the camps and what was happening with Nazism. But she was running late, and the bell went, and she was up on the top floor, so she had a whole pile of them. People were coming out, so she just pushed them out so that they floated. People would catch them. And the janitor made a citizen's arrest of her and her brother and her friends. In fact, 21 of them, I think, were arrested at that time and taken immediately away. And four days later, she was executed. You know That trial was not a fair trial. And it was called a people's court as well. It was nothing of the sort. It was a huge injustice. All of those leaflets, bar one, was, uh, they got rid of them. You know, they, they were burned. But one was smuggled out through Scandinavia all the way to Britain. And after the war ended, on the very last day when it was announced that the war was over, um, British troops flew in And they'd copied it hundreds of thousands of times and they dropped them all over Germany so that people received them, which is absolutely amazing. And if you go to Munich today, actually on the cobbles, those leaflets are now embedded into the cobbles. Um, Really remarkable, her whole story. But also how she could see the truth of the matter and she wasn't prepared to remain complicit in it. And, you know, she lived at a time when there was a lot of pressure to remain complicit.
0: I feel so privileged that we got to meet Polly that day, that she created space in her really busy schedule to really give us the time to sit down and listen to her story and ask questions. And it's inspiring to see all the things that she managed to achieve in such a short space of time. It's so important that we continue to do her work and protect the planet. We need now more than ever to come together and just stop treating the planet as a commodity and really learn how we can live alongside it and thrive I know it's a long journey and it's a hard one but it's in motion and I think we can continually go back and draw inspiration from people like Polly I I don't usually finish my podcast in this way but I remember back on that trip on the unibus trip in 2017 whenever anyone had to leave for any reason we would all sing this song to send them off and as terrifying as it feels to me to sing it's not my comfort zone i'm gonna try and i'd really like to finish with this that song that we used to sing so here it is and this time sadly it is for polly go well in peace And may the light shine on you. Go well in peace. And may the light shine on you. Go well in peace. And may the light shine on you. Go well in peace, and may the light shine on you.